We'll open God's word from Psalm 18. It's on page 536 in your pew Bible, the third longest psalm. Behind Psalm 119 and Psalm 78, even its, its length, I think, suggesting to us uh, something about its significance. Uh, the same is true of this very long superscription, uh, given one of the longest, I think only one other psalm has a longer superscription than this. And so um, already as we see the length of this psalm, as we see the length of even the Spirit-inspired superscription that is assigned to it, we're cued in that this is uh, an important psalm. We're told that it's committed to the choir master as a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens. The Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. And the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God, for all his rules are before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, 
man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people. But the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is our God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've given me the shield of your salvation. And your right hand supported me. And your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. As you're reading a psalm, it can often be helpful to look at the the end of, of the psalm to make sense of the whole. Sometimes do that with books too. You might look ahead at the conclusion, see what the author's point is in order to make sense of of everything that you're going to read. That's that's certainly the case in this psalm as as we'll see uh, the reference in verse 50 to David and his offspring forever certainly tells us something about David's goal or or David's aim in, in describing all of this. He wants to teach us something about his offspring forever. And yet more than that, verse 49 um, tells us that that everything God has done with David is so that God's name might be praised among the Gentiles. So we're going to see this pattern in in Psalm 18 that 
that points to that of another king, David's offspring forever. And, and with both of them, the way that God delivers them, the way that God saves them from the hand of their enemies is so that God might be glorified among the nations. We see in Psalm 18 how the Lord delivers his king from death so that his praise would be proclaimed among the nations. That's the point of Psalm 18. The Lord delivers his king from death so that God's praise would be proclaimed among the nations. We're going to see that first of all in David's life. We're going to see this pattern repeated in his offspring forever. And then we'll see what, what this pattern in David and David's son has to do with you and me. I just want to look at this psalm from three vantage points, as we've often done, David and Saul, David and Christ, and then David and you. First, David and Saul. The psalm itself doesn't mention Saul by name, but the inspired superscription does tell us that David wrote this on the day when God delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from Saul. Boys and girls, you've, you've learned about this in Sunday school. You've learned about this as you've read Bible stories with mom and dad. You remember how uh, so many times Saul tried to kill David. Remember David was playing the heart for him and he tried to throw his spear at him and pin him to the wall. Shortly after that, he tried to order his servants to go and kill David. He pursued him in the wilderness more than once, even after that first time when David spares his life and proves himself to be more righteous than Saul, and Saul says he's going to stop, he keeps on doing it. About half of the book of 1 Samuel is Saul chasing David down and trying to kill him. And that's basically what David is writing about in this psalm. But it's interesting, as David writes about this, he calls himself in the superscription... The servant of the Lord. That's actually a rather unique term. Um, there, there are others who uh, God calls my servant. Like we, we look at the book of Job. Uh, God refers to him as my, my servant Job. But this term, the servant of the Lord, is, is only used of Moses and Joshua. And yet here David applies it to himself. And he'll go on throughout the psalm to describe God's deliverance of him in ways... If you listen closely, sound a lot like God's deliverance of both Moses and Joshua. Um, David, throughout the psalm, will depict his life in ways that, that seem to understand himself as, as part of a pattern going all the way back to Moses and to Joshua, as we'll see pointing ahead to the one who had come from his line. And so in verses 1 through 6, he, he kind of sets the context and speaks of, of how he loves the Lord, his rock and fortress, his strength and deliver, the, the horn of his salvation who is worthy to be praised because when he called upon him, God saved him from his enemies. David says the, 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 the cords of death had encompassed him, the cords of Sheol had entangled him, the snares of death confronted him, but he cried out to God in his distress. These first six verses set the context of David's distress. He's speaking poetically of how when Saul chased him down to kill him, he cried to God for help, and like God heard Moses, and like God heard Joshua, he heard David's voice from his heavenly temple, and his cry reached his ears. And I was going to tell in the next part of the psalm, again poetically, 
of how God saved him from death. So in verses 1 to 6, we see David's distress. Then in verses 7 to 19, we see David's deliverance. He's he's threatened by the powers of death and hell, as he said in verses 4 and 5. Death and Sheol. But in the midst of this battle, he doesn't trust in his own strength. Rather, he looks to God, his fortress, his rock, and his deliverer. As we've sung already this morning, rock of ages, mighty fortress. And this mighty rock and fortress, uh, David says, causes the earth to reel and rock, the foundations of the mountains to tremble. He causes an earthquake, in verse 7, because of his anger. David says that smoke went out of God's nostrils, devouring fire went forth from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth. Verse 9 says that God bowed the heavens and came down, and thick darkness was under his feet. David is describing his deliverance from Saul in apocalyptic language, kind of language that you hear in a book like Ezekiel or or Zechariah or Revelation. And the way that he describes this in, in such apocalyptic language suggests that David himself sees great significance in the way that God has saved him from Saul. He goes on to to speak of how God made darkness, his covering, a a canopy around him, how he sent forth hailstones and clouds of fire. Boys and girls, can can you picture all of, of what David is here describing? He says that God rode on a cherub and and he flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. David is describing his deliverance from Saul in the most amazing language. He says he thundered in the heavens and the voice of the Most High was heard. That voice was accompanied by hailstones and clouds of fire or coals of fire. It says he sent out his arrows and he scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. The channels of the sea were seen. The foundation of the world was laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. David describes the great salvation that God brought him as a mighty rushing wind that parted the waters and brought salvation. Boys and girls, does that sound familiar? God parting the waters by the, the, the blast of his, his, the breath of his mouth to bring salvation for his people. It sounds a lot like the Exodus. In fact, it, it sounds almost exactly like the description that Moses gives in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15.8 of God at the blast of his nostrils piling up the waters so that the, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. David is here describing his deliverance in Exodus-like language. And this is true not only in verse 15, but his description in verses 7 to 9 calls to mind the events at at Mount Sinai just after the Exodus where there was thunder and lightning and a, a thick cloud on the mountains and God descended in fire and Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke and the whole mountain trembled and the people stood far off as God was in thick darkness. That's how Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 describe God's appearance at Mount Sinai. The same way that David here describes God's deliverance of him. 
He portrays God's deliverance of of him from Saul as his own personal exodus, his own personal crossing of the Red Sea where he then makes covenant with God. In verse 16, he, he describes how God drew him out of many waters, which is the same way that Exodus 2 verse 10 describes Moses being drawn out of the waters as a baby. In fact, that's the only other place where, where this verb for drawing out is used. David is being presented as a new Moses who, by God delivering him from Saul, experiences a new exodus, and that God then makes covenant with him in the same way that he covenanted with Israel. He's rescued David from his strong enemy and from those who hate him, from those who confronted him in the day of his calamity, but the Lord was his support. The Lord brought him into a broad place like Israel in the promised land and rescued him because he delights in him, as he did them, Deuteronomy 7. And again, it's in Psalm 17 that we looked at a couple weeks ago at our prayer service. David um, is speaking of himself in ways that the Old Testament does of Israel. Where Remember in Psalm 17, 8, he said that he is the apple of God's eye. That's the language that Deuteronomy 32 in another song of Moses used to describe the people of God collectively. He, he speaks of himself as a new Moses and a new Israel with whom God has made covenant. And as God delivered Moses and Israel from their enemies who were too mighty for them, so David is delivered from the hand of Saul by the mighty hand of God who delights in him. And then he speaks in the next section, verses 20 to 29, of why God delights in him. He spoke in verses 1 to 6 of his distress. He speaks in verses 7 to 19 of his deliverance. And now in verses 20 to 29, he speaks of his devotion. How God dealt with him according to his righteousness, according to the cleanness of his hands, he rewarded him. For he kept the ways of the Lord and did not wickedly depart from God as Saul had. But God's rules were ever before him. His statutes he did not put away from him. He was a man after God's own heart. As in Psalm 15, we see that word blameless. That he kept himself from guilt. So God rewarded him according to his righteousness, according to the cleanness of his hands in God's sight. For with the merciful, God shows himself merciful, And with the blameless, he shows himself blameless. David is now describing in the latter part of this section God's response to David's devotion. Showing himself pure to the the purified, though tortuous to the crooked. He he saves the humble, that is David, but he, he brings down the haughty, that is Saul. And because of his righteous character, he lights David's lamb and allows him to run against a troop and leap over a wall, delivering him from distress, delivering his devoted servant from destruction. And in verses 30 to 45, then establishes David's dominion or dynasty. Here we see how God not only delivers David, but establishes him. And not only is he David's shield, as it says in verse 30, 
but how he equips him with strength, verse 32, not just um, on the defensive, but, but offensively. and makes his feet like that of a deer and sets him on the heights. That's a phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament for giving him victory over his enemies. He says he trains his hands for war. He, he gives him superhuman-like strength so that he can bend a bow of bronze. Just as he spoke of, of, of God's deliverance of him in the first half of this psalm, an apocalyptic, hyperbolic, or, or um, poetically exaggerated language, now he does the same and says that he can jump over a wall and bend a bow of bronze. Now he's not just a new Moses, drawn out of the waters in distress, but, but a conquering warrior like Joshua who pursues his enemies and overtakes them. He doesn't turn back till they're consumed. He thrusts them through so that they're not able to rise and they fall under his feet. They sink under him as God equips him with strength for the battle. His enemies turn back and those who hate him, verse 40, are destroyed. David says they cry for help, but God doesn't answer. There's no one to save. But he beats them like the dust of the wind and casts them out like mire of the streets. God makes him, verse 43, the head of the nations who people serve and obey and come cringing to. Even foreigners who had had not previously known him, they come and they bow down to him. Think Psalm 2. Those nations who previously had raged against him, now they come, they tremble before him and they kiss the sun. These verses describe his conquest. The servant of the Lord is delivered like Moses and conquers like Joshua, destroys like Joshua. So as we move throughout this psalm, we see David's distress, we see David's deliverance, we see his devotion, his dominion. And finally, in verses 46 to 50, we see David's declaration, perhaps David's doxology. His declaration of praise to this God who is his rock, the the God of his salvation who has delivered him from his enemies and exalted him above those who rose against him. Even that singular enemy of verse 48, Saul, who is a a sort of type of, of the Antichrist. God saves him from death. He, he, He conquers his enemies and he gives him a kingdom. That's what we see throughout Psalm 18. And the goal of it all, verse 49, is that David would be able to praise God among the nations and sing to his name, saying, for great salvation he brings to his king and he shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. That's how the psalm ends in verse 50 a declaration of praise to God for not only his steadfast love to David, but to his offspring forever. And that word offspring, or, or some translations, it's um, seed, is in the singular. This is referring to the promised seed, the promised Davidic offspring of 2 Samuel 7, the king who would come from David's line and rule forever. What David is doing here at the end of this psalm is is he's, he's hinting for us 
that this psalm is not just about what happened to him and Saul, but how what happened to him and Saul points to what would happen with David's son, his offspring forever, God's anointed. That this psalm is ultimately about him. John Calvin, who's often somewhat cautious about uh, seeing types where they might not be, um, says of this psalm and of that word offspring, we are not to understand this as all of David's descendants indiscriminately, but we are to consider it as particularly referring to that successor of David of whom God had spoken in 2 Samuel 7. David here commends his seed to us as honored by that remarkable promise that fully applies neither to Solomon nor any of his children, but to the only begotten Son of God. Which means, Calvin says, that we shall only duly profit in the study of this psalm if we are led by the contemplation of the shadow and type to him who is the substance. We shall only duly profit in the reading and the study of this psalm if we are led from from contemplating the shadow and type that is David to Christ who is the substance. So that's what we want to do in the second part of of our time together this morning. We want to move from David and Saul to David and Christ. David leads us to make this move in the way that, that he ends this psalm. And yet not only in the way that, that he ends this psalm, but also in the way the New Testament speaks of it. This psalm is twice quoted in the New Testament by the author of Hebrews and by Paul in Romans. It is placed on the lips of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 quotes the Septuagint of verse 2, where it says, I will take refuge in him or, or put my trust in him as the words of Christ. And Romans 15 understands verse 49 as ultimately referring to the proclamation of the good news, not just of God's deliverance of David, but David's son. The apostolic testimony and the words of David himself in verse 50 lead us to see this psalm as pointing beyond David to the experience of his son. That's why everything that David describes is is couched in this prophetic hyperbole, this this apocalyptic language that goes far beyond anything that ever happened to him. James Johnston says the victory of Jesus is, is bursting through the seams in this psalm. David wants us to understand that he's writing about more than his own victories. The content of of Psalm 18 is too big and too full to only refer to David. But like a river that overflows its banks, this psalm overflows the historical events of David's life. There is simply more here than was true of David himself. David was not literally encompassed by the cords of death and tangled in the cords of hell, but wrote metaphorically of his experience as a prophetic testimony to the one who was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. When David was saved from his enemy, there was no literal earthquake. The foundations of the earth did not rock and reel. But when Jesus, his descendant, the offspring of David, was crucified, and when he rose from the dead, the earth did quake. Matthew 28, 2, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. His appearance was like lightning. 
And when he died just three days before that, the rocks were split in two, the veil was torn, the dead were raised, the the darkness of Psalm 18 covered the earth. Even these servant of the Lord themes point to Jesus, who is the servant of the Lord, par excellence, the greater Moses, who brings about a greater exodus, the true Joshua, Yeshua, who brings his people into the land. The one who God brings into a broad place and rescues because he delights in him. He delights in his righteousness, to which verses 20 to 27 point. We said this, When he looked at Psalm 17, the the same is true of Psalm 18. David's relative righteousness points beyond himself to the comprehensive righteousness of his offspring forever. Verses 20 to 24 are supremely true on the lips of Jesus. He is the merciful and blameless one of verse 25. He is the pure in heart of verse 26. He is the meek and humble of verse 27 who God will raise up. Again, commentator James Johnston says, David was a prophet and foresaw and spoke of the absolute innocence and purity of Christ who God answered and delivered from death precisely because of his sinless life. Who could say, verse 20, the Lord has dealt with me according to to my righteousness, who God then raises up from death to become the conquering warrior of the last half of this psalm, who defeats his enemies and is made head of the nations. Just as God said in Psalm 2, I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill, ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. And so in verses 43 to 50, God does We can look at at verses 37 and 38 where it says that he will chase his enemies down and he will thrust them. It's interesting, that word thrust literally means um, smash or, or crush and is repeatedly used in places throughout the Old Testament that echo Genesis 3.15. One example would be in uh, Numbers 24, in that, that oracle of Balaam, where it says that he will crush the foreheads of Moab, and, and um, he's speaking of that star that would rise from Jacob's line. Speak of that king who would come from Judah. Repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, this word is used in these places that are deliberately echoing Genesis 3.15, which which leads one commentator at least to say, an allusion to Genesis 3.15 seems to be present in verse 38 of this psalm. As these crushed enemies cannot rise but are under the feet of the Davidic king. Here he goes on in verse 40. To say that these enemies who hated him will literally turn their necks to him. It says in the ESV, um, bats, but you can see in the, in the footnote, that's, that's the word necks. Which seems to be an allusion to the promise that was given to Judah in Genesis 49. Where it says, your brothers will praise you, your hand will be on the necks of your enemies, and the scepter will not depart from you, but a lion will come from the tribe of Judah who will rule in the midst of his enemies. And so David throughout this psalm is alluding to Psalm 2 and and Genesis 49 and Genesis 3, all of these messianic promises to underline the point that this prophetic portrayal of his deliverance is a prophetic witness to what God will do for the one from his line will be delivered from death, raised in glory, will crush his enemies and will rule as the head of the nations. Christ. 
James Hamilton puts it like this. He says, as with Psalms 15, 16, and 17, if we put these words on the lips of Jesus, the meaning only grows in depth and power. Whereas David was threatened by the powers of death, destruction, and hell, verses 4 and 5, those powers actually got their cords and snares on Jesus who died and was buried. Whereas the earthquake that accompanied God's intervention on David's behalf was metaphorical, verse 7. Earthquakes really did accompany the the death and resurrection of Jesus. Whereas David spoke metaphorically of his deliverance in Exodus and conquest terms, those events found their fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the greater Moses, the greater Joshua, the servant of the Lord. And whereas David began to complete the conquest of the land only to then be hampered by his sin, not so with Jesus. But every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the righteous one whose righteousness God has rewarded and given the nations as his inheritance. David's offspring forever. Psalm 18 is a prophetic testimony to Christ the King. Spurgeon said, it is well clear that a greater than David is here. He says, you will not need our aid in this respect. If you know him, you will readily find him in the sorrows, deliverance, and triumphs all throughout this psalm. Which should lead us then to join the praise of those last five verses. Verse 45, trembling, as Psalm 211 calls us to. It's saying, blessed be our rock and exalted be the God of our salvation who has delivered his king and subdued his enemies under him. He's exalted him against those who who rose against him and delivered him from that singular man of violence. As it speaks of those enemies and then that singular man of violence, I think we're to understand that um, ultimately as, as the multitude of enemies who hated Christ and the singular serpent who incited them. Who Christ, in verse 38, crushes under his feet in victory, and in verse 49, proclaims God's praise among the nations and sings to his name. He proclaims God's praise among the nations as a direct result of everything that God has done in saving and raising up his king to crush his enemies under his feet through death and resurrection. He raises him up to proclaim God's name his praise among the nations, which is exactly what we find him doing in Hebrews chapter 2, where it it quotes this psalm as he's leading the church in praise as its heavenly song leader, proclaiming God's praise among the nations because of what God has done and the great salvation he has brought his king and his steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. And so our response to this psalm is to join the chorus of praise in verse 49 and sing to God's name for the great salvation he has brought through his son. Christ, the Davidic offspring forever, as he is raised up to proclaim God's praise among the nations, our response is to join in that chorus of praise and praise the Lord for all that he has done through his son and to say with David and with Christ by whose spirit David spoke in verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. 
This psalm is, is seeking to move our hearts not only to join the chorus of praise, but to be moved to say with David, I love you, O Lord, for all that you have done through Christ. For the great salvation you've brought to your king, for the perfect blamelessness of, of this one who was yet killed by his enemies, who hated him, who was brought down to death for our sakes, but then raised up in power as the proof that God delighted in him and was pleased with his sacrifice. Who he then gave all authority and power over the nations so that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that our response to all that God has done in Christ is to praise. To say with David in verse 31, who is God but the Lord and who is a rock except our God? This psalm is meant to lead us to praise. This psalm is meant to amaze us at the beauty of the scriptures and God's unfolding plan of redemption to see how Christ fulfills all of these patterns of of Moses and Joshua and David, how his words and ways are perfect and always prove true, verse 30, and how he is a refuge for all who trust in him. Not only for David, not only for Christ to whom he pointed, but as we're reminded back in Psalm 2, for those who take refuge in Christ, God's anointed king, we too can have this confidence. We too may have this refuge and this confidence of Psalm 18 that by union with the Christ of this psalm, God also is our rock and strength who will save us from our enemies. That because we are united to Christ the King, whose prayer God heard, he will also hear our prayer as it reaches his temple. He will save us from distress and even raise us from death. He'll be our support in the midst of this same spiritual battle that Psalm 18 describes that you and I are now involved in. He'll be our support and will delight in us. He will show himself merciful to us as we are merciful to others. He will show himself pure to us as we are pure in heart. He will save us in our meekness and make us inherit the earth. He'll be our light in the darkness. We could go on and on. The same blessings that David possessed as a type of Christ, we too possess united to Christ. But only united to Christ. Notice that warning in verses 26 and 27 that to the crooked, God makes himself seem tortuous. And the proud, he does not lift up but brings low. And so if you would have the confidence of David and of Christ in this psalm, then you must humble yourself to receive him by faith and side with the conquering king of verse 37, as opposed to his enemies, who in verse 42 will be like the dust of the wind. It's echoing Psalm 1-4, the, the chaff of the wind that God drives away out of his presence. Side with the king. And let this same confidence be yours, even as you engage in this spiritual battle against Satan and and, and the world and your own sinful flesh. Trust him to equip you with strength and to make you secure on the heights, to train you for war with his shield, the armor of God, so that you'll not be defeated in this spiritual battle, but believe that the victory this psalm celebrates is yours too by faith in the risen Lord Jesus. Believe that. And proclaim that 
So that's what Romans 15 tells us to do as it applies this psalm to us in the New Testament. Paul quotes verse 49 and says, Christ desires the nations would glorify God for his mercy as it is written. We'll praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. So Paul quotes verse 49 as support for his mission to the Gentiles so that Christ would be honored and glorified in every nation. That indeed is the end and purpose and goal of this psalm. Christ's glory among the nations, the exaltation and triumph of his kingdom in every part of the earth. And so our response, in addition to simple faith in the risen Lord Jesus and confidence as those united to him, is to pray and preach for the advance of this kingdom that God has given to David's son so that every tribe, every tongue, and every nation would worship him and join the praise of verse 49 of David's offspring forever, Jesus Christ the King. So that people from every nation, as he says in verse 44, would come cringing to him. Those who had not known him would hear and and would come and obey him. Paul's use of this psalm in Romans 15 is calling us to pray and and preach and and labor for the, the, the um, the, the full coming of Christ's kingdom so that every knee would bow and every tongue confess and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would join in this chorus of praise. And so we pray that God would give us grace to do that, that he would even bless the preaching of his word today to that end, and that he would continue to raise up, even from among us, those who would bring this good news, God's deliverance of his king, even to the nations who have not yet heard him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we glorify you and praise you and sing to your name because of all that you have done in saving your son from death raising him in glory, giving him the nations. We praise you for how he fulfills um, all of these these patterns of the exodus and conquest and and Moses and Joshua and David. And pray that you would make our hearts, Lord, to burn within us as we've beheld that this morning. Like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that our burning hearts would compel us to pray and preach for the coming of Christ's kingdom and his glory to be known in all the earth, even as this psalm prophesies, so that those who had not known him would serve him, foreigners would come cringing to him, and all nations would kiss the Son and serve him as king forever. All this we pray in Jesus' name, the one in whom you delight.